Good morning. We're in James chapter 4 this morning, and I'm excited to bring the Word of God to you. We'll be looking at the first 10 verses of James chapter 4, and I hope that this will be a blessing. And so, honestly, I'm approaching it uh, a little different perspective than a lot of times you hear this passage addressed, but I believe that uh, this is biblical, as I think you will see and it brings light to this passage. James chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scriptures speak to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. But he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. Let's pray. Father, thank you, God, for this passage of Scripture. Not an extremely common passage, but God, thank you that you have spoken in your word, and your truth is applicable to us. It's life-changing, and I pray, God, that you'll use it in our hearts, in our minds, that we'll be transformed to the image of your dear son, in Jesus' name, amen. In Romans chapter 10, verse 9, there's a scripture that we commonly quote. It says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. We know what it means to confess with our mouth, but what does it mean to believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. What does belief in one's heart really mean? Well, the scriptures sometimes use the human heart as an anthropomorphic expression. It's common today. It's been common throughout history. In the New Testament and in Western civilization, until this very day, the heart is what's used as the seed of the emotions. And the seat of the emotions is that spiritual part of us where our desires dwell. It's like our want to. Our hearts determine what we love and what we care about. The heart is the emotional part of one's soul. A person's heart determines what they say and what they do. We use the word heart as the seat of the emotions. When we say to someone we love, I love you with all my heart. To the Hebrews, the seat of the emotions was sometimes the heart. 
Sometimes it was the bowels and sometimes it was the kidneys. So Doreen, can you imagine if Mike said to you, honey, I love you with both my kidneys. Well, maybe that's what somebody would say to their spouse back in Old Testament days. Believe it or not, in ancient Rome, the seat of the motions was the liver. So maybe someday Lynn will lean over to Michael and say, Hey, baby, you make my liver quiver. <laughs> Aren't you glad that the seat of the emotions today is the heart? Not the blood pumping muscle. I mean, it's a reference to the blood pumping muscle. It's an anthropomorphic expression. But I like the idea of the heart being the seat of the emotions much better than the liver or the kidney or especially the bowels. And we won't make a joke about that one. On a serious note, the scriptures teach that we're born, born, I can never say that word, with hardened, darkened, wicked hearts. Listen to what Jeremiah the prophet said. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. It, the word is to be sick and incurable. Who can understand it? So really, if we're honest with ourselves, we all need heart surgery. The Bible calls it circumcision of the heart. Paul wrote, referring to the Jewish believers in Romans chapter 2, for he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the latter, not by the law, and his praise is not from men, but from God. Honestly, we are born into this world with sinful, and here's really the key. I mean, we have self-seeking hearts. We're seeking our own pleasure. We're seeking what we love. People say, follow your heart, but especially for the unbeliever, that's an extremely bad idea. We're born with spiritual heart problems. And our spiritual heart problems are much more serious than any physical heart problem that we could ever have. With these things in mind, I want to take you to James chapter 4 and go through the text that we've already read. But first understand, James, the book of James is much like the book of Proverbs. It does not stress doctrinal knowledge, but practical faith living. Also understand that while many regard the book of James as written to Jewish believers, James does not assume all the recipients are genuine believers. The book is extremely evangelistic in nature. Just listen to chapter 1. James often, often defines what it means to have a relationship with God. We see that throughout the book. James calls for perseverance and evidence of saving faith in verse 12, chapter 1. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. He's talking about perseverance. That's the evidence of saving faith, that we never give up, that we continue with the Lord. That's what saving faith does. It perseveres. It endures. It doesn't quit. 
James then calls for repentance, which is inseparable from saving faith in verse 21. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness in humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. <laughs> Very evangelistic in nature. James continues his argument in chapter 1, calling for faithfulness, because saving faith ultimately and always results in selfless, godly, faithful living. Listen to what he says and listen to the analogy that James uses here, verse 22 through 25. But prove yourself doers of the word and not mere hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror for once he has looked at himself and gone away, he immediately has forgotten what kind of person he was. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides in it, not having become a forgetful hearer but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. So James uses an amazing analogy. It's like you know, I think about getting up in the morning and looking in the mirror and seeing everything. Maybe I need to be shaved. Maybe I need to shave. Maybe my hair is sticking up all over the place. Maybe I got sleep in my eyes and I just see it. Oh, I see the problem. And then walking away and forgetting about it, not being able to look in the mirror as I go through the day. That's what it's like to hear the word of God, to read the word of God, and then to walk away from it. It's evangelistic in nature. James closes this section of chapter 1 with an all-encompassing conclusion. Verse 26 and 27, if anyone thinks himself to be religious, and really the word there is a worshiper. If anyone thinks himself to be a worshiper and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this man's religion or worship is useless or worthless. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in the distress and to keep oneself unstained or unspotted by the world. James here addresses three areas that are always changed ultimately through saving faith because each of these stem from a regenerated heart. Our speech is changed, the way we relate to others, in other words, what comes out of our mouths. Our focus, on, our focus becomes outward rather than inward. It becomes serving others and no longer serving self. That's not the ultimate goal of one with a regenerated heart. And our spiritual complexion is changed. We keep ourselves unstained or unspotted by the world so we seek moral purity in our lives so when you come to james chapter 4 although the word is heart is not used james deals with heart issues and we'll continue to see this he begins with two questions the first one in verse 1 is what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you but in the ver in the greek text there's no verb so it's like this whence quarrels, whence conflicts among you. That's the way it's written. A quarrel is a bustle, a fight, a battle, and it's in the plural here. So it's like a series of skirmishes, so to speak. That's what happens among people. 
we have these conflicts, we have these fights, these arguments. And then conflict is the word for controversy or even strife. It's used of strife. And that's what comes about. James is asking, where do these fights and controversies originate? And he answers it with a question. He answers a question with a question. Very common among the Jewish people. In the second half of verse 1, is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? Now, the word pleasure here is hedone, from which we get the word hedon. It means desires, lust. It can mean sensual delights. But it's not always used of just sensual things. It's the desire for satisfaction of any kind. And this is where the heart fits in. Remember the heart is the seat of the emotions, the seat of desires, of pleasure. A sinful heart desires self-promotion and to serve one's own desires, desires that are for that person unquenchable. A new living regenerated heart that can only be brought about by God desires God's glory and seeks to serve others. Listen to the words of the Lord Jesus teaching his disciples in Luke chapter 6, verse 45. The good man, out of the good treasure of his heart, brings forth what is good. And the evil man, out of the evil treasure, brings forth what is evil. For his mouth speaks from that which fills his heart. A heart issue. See, the mouth is not the ultimate problem. That's the expression. The mouth is the expression. Our words are the expression of our hearts. Notice verse 1. It's your pleasures, it's your desires that wage war in your members. He's identifying the problem here. Our pleasures that comes from a corrupt heart wage war. And that word war is to serve a military campaign. So this is not talking about individual fights This is or, or skirmishes. It's talking about a lifelong war, a war to the end, a war that we don't want to give up and that we don't give up apart from God intervening. This is a military pe- campaign we are all born into because we're self-serving. We're at war with God and we're at war with anybody that gets in the way of my little kingdom. And, and that's the issue here. In essence, we each have our own little kingdoms. We seek to be sovereign over our kingdoms, over the life, over our circumstances. We want to build it up. We want to maintain our kingdom and its resources. And these kingdoms are worldly kingdoms. They are fed through the things of the world. And we've touched on this passage a number of weeks ago. This is exactly what John was referring to in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 and 16. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. So this passage tells us, do not love. There's the heart again. It's the heart that loves. Not the blood pumping muscle, but the seat 
of the emotions. Where our desires originate from in us. Do not love the world nor the things in the world. A sinful, hard heart loves the world and the things in the world because that person is seeking pleasure. That's the word James uses. It's satisfaction to what this world has to offer. But a new living heart loves the Father because through the work of God, they have found real lasting satisfaction. Real pleasure comes from Him and only from Him. French theologian uh, Belasse Pascal said this, There is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every man which cannot be satisfied by any created thing, but only by God the Creator, made known through Jesus Christ. And that's the truth. I've often said that seeking satisfaction through the things of this world is like being in a desert and seeing a mirage. And seeking after that illusion, but coming up empty. Notice also, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. You cannot love the world and God. Cannot be the source of our delight. Just as you can't serve God and money, you can't love the world and the Father. It's an impossibility. He says, for all that's in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but it's from the world. The lust of the flesh, very simple. I mean, and maybe it's a little bit simplistic here, the way I will define it, but it gives you an idea. The lust of the flesh is seeking satisfaction or pleasure through experiences. It could be drugs. It could be sexual things but it's looking to fill that empty void through those things. The lust of the eyes is seeing something and saying, if I just had that, I'd be happy. If, if I had that, I would really be satisfied. So it's seeking pleasure through what we get. And the boastful pride of life is seeking pleasure through self-elevation. It's exalting self rather than God. MacArthur says, through pride... Humanity defies God and arrogantly attempts to dethrone the sovereign of the universe. This pleasure-seeking that both John and James refer to, get it, it's fake news. It's also bait and switch. Remember when Lucy held the football for Charlie Brown? only to jerk it away at the last second. Little Charlie was promised the joy of kicking that football, hopefully through the goalpost, but only found himself landing flat on his back, probably in pain. That's bait and switch. One thing is promised, but you get something else. Don't misunderstand. Hebrews 11:25 tells us there is pleasure in sin for a season but it doesn't satisfy. You always have to have more. It's never enough. The pleasures this world have to offer never give what they promise. It's all a facade. 
It's a mirage. It's fake news. It's bait and switch. Only God satisfies. And if you don't get anything else today, believe and understand. It's only God that gives real satisfaction. Let's head back to James chapter 4, James 4, 2. You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. The word lust here, and we're back to heart again, aren't we? To set the heart upon. That's exactly what the word means in the Greek. To set the heart upon or to long for. It's in the present tense, so it's a continual lust. It's a continual setting your heart on the wrong things. He says you lust and do not have, so you commit or present tense again, you practice murder. Lust for pleasure leads to murder. Either physical murder or the kind of murder Jesus talked about where you hate your brother. You murder him in your heart, so to speak. You are envious, he says, and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Here again, we're back to our little kingdoms where we see something, we want it, we think it'll satisfy us, and we don't care who gets in the way, we fight and quarrel with people. A sinful heart always leads to sinful thoughts and sinful actions. He says you do not have because you do not ask. See, we must understand that God is the source of everything good. And we can trust him to give us what we really need. James already wrote back in chapter 1, verse 17, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He's always the same. He's always, uh, he's always consistent. And he is the source of everything that's good. You do not have because you do not ask. But those who do ask, listen to what it says. Those with an evil heart that do ask, this is it right here, verse 3. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. James continues here to deal with those with sinful hearts. Sadly, some people look to God as a genie in a bottle. They look to him to get what they want to feed their own self-seeking desires. To these people, God is just a servant. Uh, uh, God is a servant. He's subservient to me. They make themselves God, and they make God their servant. Paul warns the Philippians of those who walk according to the flesh, who are enemies of the cross. And he says in verse 19, chapter 3, Philippians, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite or belly, whose glory is their shame, who set their minds on earthly things, their appetite. That word means a hollow cavity. It's the inside of us. Sadly, men without Christ have a hollow ca cavity in themselves that can never, ever be satisfied. Their appetites are never satisfied because they're searching through the thing, for the things of this world, thinking they'll satisfy, but they do not. 
they can never get enough. When they pray, God does not answer because the request is to feed self with the things of the world. These people are still sitting on the throne of their lives. They have not submitted to God and his kingdom. James lays it on the line as he continues. Verse 4, James 4, 4. Look at what he says. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. This is adultery. It's, it's idolatry, in other words. And the word friendship, we're back to heart again. The word friendship is phileo. It is love or friendship love. Back to the heart. The world is not talking, it's the word cosmos, but it's not just used of the physical world. It's used of the man-centered, Satan-directed system of this present age. You cannot be a friend of the world and also a friend of God. If you're a friend of this world system, you make yourself hostile to, it says in this verse, and an enemy of God. I don't want to be an enemy of God. I don't want to be hostile to him. He says in verse 5, a very difficult verse to translate. In the New American Standard, it says, So do you think that the Scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the Spirit which He has made to dwell in us. I actually think this is one of those places where the King James has a much more preferable reading because the translation is accurate to the text, to the Greek text, but it also fits the context. Do you think that the Scripture saith in vain, the Spirit that dwelleth in us, Lusteth to envy? MacArthur thinks the same way here. He said the likely idea is this. Don't you know that you yourselves are living proof of the veracity of Scripture, which clearly teaches that the natural man has a spirit of envy? But then we come to verse 6. That first little phrase, but he gives a greater grace. God's grace is poured out on those with a spirit of envy. God's grace is poured out on those with hardened hearts by his grace. Otherwise, we would have no hope because honestly, we all fit into the same category. Maybe It varies from person to person, but ultimately we have our own little kingdom. We have hardened hearts and we want what we want. And anybody that gets in the way, whether it's God or man, well, that's the problem. While God is sovereign in his grace and pouring out on those as he pleases, man is responsible. And we see that here. As as we continue in verse C, Verse 6, excuse me, we see man's responsibility. He said, but he gives a greater grace. And then he quotes from Proverbs 3. Therefore it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. What we see here is the beginning of a call to repentance. Because the grace of God 
is towards sinners. And the, the command is to repent. It's to turn from sin. It's to have a change of mind about our sin and our love for sin where we should be loving God. Verse 6b, therefore it says, God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. It is pride that seeks pleasure through the things of this world. It's pride that sets oneself up as king to decide what I want and that I'm going to get what I want, that I will have my pleasure fulfilled. I will be satisfied no matter what happens, no matter who gets in the way. Here's a question. Who has the right to rule my life? Who should have dominion over a man, God or man? The simple truth is this. We were created by God. And that fact alone gives him the right to be king over us. But then take into account that man fell into sin and God in his grace sent his son to die for all that would believe. Take that into account. How can we reject the love of God? How can we reject his kingdom and his righteousness? He says in verse 7 and 8a, Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Submit. The word means to rank under. We are to rank ourselves under God. It's recognizing who God is, that he is creator, and he is savior. We are to resist the devil. It means to stand against, to oppose, and the word devil means, it's, it's the word for the fallen one, that means slanderer or accuser. Not only are we to submit to God, though, in this passage, we're to draw near to him. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Here we see human responsibility. We're to draw near in intimate fellowship and communion with the living, eternal, almighty God. This is man's ultimate privilege, to commune with the king of the universe. Think about what that means. God in Christ has given us the privilege to have fellowship, to have communion with the king of heaven and earth, with the one that spoke and it was just like that. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Folks, the God that we serve, the God that sent Jesus Christ to pay the penalty for sin, who rose from the dead, is a God who forgives. Who's a God that reconciles us. It brings us back into a relationship with Him. He redeems us out of the storehouse of sin and brings us into a relationship with Him. And He adopts us as His children. That word means to be sun-placed. Now think about the significance of a man and a woman going and choosing a child out of a terrible condition, maybe in an orphanage, maybe they're dirty, maybe they don't have good speech, maybe they don't have good morals, maybe it's somebody that nobody 
would choose to love. But this couple chooses this little boy or this little girl and adopts them as their parents or as their child, I should say. That's adoption. That is the God that created us. Those who are in Christ Jesus have been adopted into his family. We are children of the living God. We weren't born children of God. We are born, the Bible says, children of the devil. But God in his grace has taken sinners like me and adopted us into his family. So he says in verse 8b, cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and joy to gloom. The awareness of our sinful condition should cause us to mourn. If you get a grasp of, our, of your sinful condition, of who we really are apart from Christ, you will mourn. What passage does this make you think about? makes me think about the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5. Just two of them. He begins, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Poor in spirit is the very opposite of self-sufficiency. It's dependency. This speaks of deep humility of recognizing one's spiritual bankruptcy apart from God. It's recognizing our sin, that we have no righteousness to offer. It's not being materially poor. It's being poor in spirit, bankrupt before God, having nothing to offer. But he continues, and this is where it relates. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Mourning over spiritual bankruptcy, mourning over sin, that's what it's talking about. First, we recognize our bankruptcy. We're poor in spirit, and then that causes us to mourn. See, Matthew chapter 5 is really the evidences of repentance. That's what it's about. Just as Jesus demonstrates the heart of a repentant person in Matthew 5, James calls for the same in James chapter 4. Verse 9, again, be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. This is the heart of a truly repentant person. Our sin should cause us to mourn before God. But just as it says, for they will be comforted in Matthew 5, 4, we find many scriptures that say God brings comfort. You know, there's a reason that Christians are those that have joy. God brought us by his power, by his conviction to mourning because of our sin, but then he gives us joy. God promised in Jeremiah 31, 13, that there's coming a day that he would turn mourning to joy. And he's talking in that passage about the new covenant. He's talking about what we have today, what we have in Jesus Christ. He says in verse 13, Jeremiah 31, For I will turn their mourning to joy and comfort them and give them joy for their sorrow. So when we recognize our sin, when we mourn before God, God steps in and gives comfort. He gives joy. James closes this section with these Words in verse 10, 
these all-encompassing words. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and He will exalt you. True humility is honest about my sinful condition. True humility admits that God is just in finding me guilty and exercising judgment upon me. But true humility looks to Christ for salvation, as we continue to see in Matthew chapter 5. True humility looks to Christ for salvation and forgiveness and joy. That's where my joy comes from. It's from the Lord. It's not anything that I've done, for I'm nothing special. Matter of fact, as Paul said, I'm the chief of sinners. I know what I deserve. But God in His grace, God in His grace, oh, that we might look to Him. Oh, that we might humble ourselves and admit our conditions and look to Him. That's what He's calling for us to do in James chapter 4. That's what He's calling for the Jews to do there. That's what Matthew chapter 5, Jesus and the Beatitudes call us to do. Humble ourselves. Do not ever think that you can be satisfied through the things of this world. Only God truly gives lasting satisfaction, eternal satisfaction. You don't have to go back and get more. He really satisfies. Let's pray. Father, thank you, God. We're so undeserving. We're sinners. Our hearts, apart from you, are deceitful above all things. Incurably sick. Who can even understand them? I don't understand my heart apart from you. But God, thank you for regenerating hearts of those who believe on your name. Thank you for the change. And God, we know we're not perfect after we trust in you. We still fall. We still have the old sin nature that's there. But there greater is he that's within us than he that's in the world. God, thank you for the life-changing power of your spirit that comes to indwell us and to give us victory over these things. So may we grow in our walk with you. May we walk by the Spirit that we would not fulfill the lust of the flesh. And God, we will continue to give you the glory for who you are and for all that you've done in Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.